reading is from the book of Genesis, chapter 6. The Lord saw how great the wickedness of the human race had become on the earth, and that every inclination of the thoughts of the human heart was only evil all the time. The Lord regretted that he had made human beings on the earth, and his heart was deeply troubled. So the Lord said, I will wipe from the face of the earth the human race I have created, and with them the animals, the birds, and the creatures that move along the ground, for I regret that I have made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. So God said to Noah, I'm going to put an end to all people, for the earth is filled with violence because of them. I am surely going to destroy both them and the earth. So make yourself an ark of cypress wood. Make rooms in it and coat it with pitch inside and out. And this is how you are to build it. The ark is to be 300 cubits long, 50 cubits wide, and 30 cubits high. Make a roof for it, leaving below the roof an opening one cubit high all around. Put a door in the side of the ark and make lower, middle, and upper decks. I'm going to bring floodwaters on the earth to destroy all life under the heavens, every creature that has breath of life in it. Everything on earth will perish. But I will establish my covenant with you, and you will enter the ark, you and your sons and your wife and your sons' wives with you. You are to bring into the ark two of all living creatures, male and female, to keep them alive with you, two of every kind of bird, of every kind of animal, and of every kind of creature that moves along the ground will come to be with you and to be kept alive. You are to take every kind of food that is to be eaten and store it away as food for you and for them. Noah did everything just as God commanded him. The word of the Lord. Yeah, that used to seem like some ancient myth that was just, well, ancient and a little bit silly. The Lord said to Noah, you better build an arky, arky, build it out of hickory, barky, barky. But now it seems like Holy cow, the sea levels are rising faster than the gloomiest predictions among other dire scenarios. So are we back here again in a way? On the eve of destruction? Not that God is going to destroy the earth, but given the threats we face and the story where God changes God's mind about creation and is sorry to ever have created it, I wouldn't blame anyone if they had a few questions about God's, I don't know, general reliability. I mean, what is God even? Shouldn't God be like the definition of reliable? Someone, some way, something you can trust? I mean, I believe that. But Trust in what way? For what? To save us from destruction? Doesn't really seem like it, does it? I mean, I didn't make up the story of the flood to cast dispersions on God's character. People have been telling this story for a long time, and sure, there's the rainbow promise at the end, but there's the blotting out of everything that breathes in the beginning. Maybe it's that God is a creative type, like the ultimate creator. And creative types aren't reliable in the same way as, I don't know, the administratively gifted. (laughs) 
To create is precisely not to entirely control. There are risks in any creative act. There is always the possibility of loss, even disaster, whether you're making a baby or composing an opera. And I mean, talk about risks. There's this very quiet, peaceful void. And then God creates creatures that roar and hiss and grunt and chew and eat and dribble and uh, lie and murder. Maybe God didn't think it all through very carefully. God creates the birds and says, let them fly. What astounding work, brilliantly executed. Some of it gorgeously complex, some of it crudish, gritty. I mean, how would you describe a cockroach or a blobfish? I wish I had slides. A sea sponge, avant-garde. But God looks at it all, everything that God made and says, it's good. It's very good, actually. I've always liked that quite a bit. Like, it's somehow personally reassuring, a blessing on all that is. But God might be overreaching. I mean, maybe some, maybe when surveying one's own creation, some circumspection is appropriate. I love that in the first chapter of Genesis, God looks over what God made and says it's very good, but I'm not entirely surprised or even totally disappointed that God comes back to God's work after a while on these founding narratives and realizes that it was maybe more of a shaky first draft than an actual masterpiece. I could be wrong, but maybe we shouldn't take this personally. In the first chapter of the Bible, God creates and says it's all good. By the sixth, God looks at it and realizes God was wrong. God sees that every inclination of the thoughts of the human heart was only evil all the time. The earth was filled with violence. The text keeps pressing the all, the everything, all of it, the entirety, entirely bad, the whole project a complete disaster. You know, maybe this sweeping condemnation is a little overdramatic, like the artist sometimes tends to. Swinging from grandiosity to loathing, it's so good. And then later, I am so embarrassed I ever made that. Or maybe it's just a reflection of a growing honesty or self-awareness. Creating is a risky undertaking. God feels terrible that God's creation hasn't turned out well. It grieves God's heart deeply, the text says. It's not an easy decision, but God decides to scrap it, this draft. Hit delete. Let it dissolve under the faucet in the studio sink. Start over. But maybe the point of this story isn't this huge mistake. It's more about the discovery of a path forward. Life is gorgeous, and it's terrible. Slavery and school shootings, Ebola, tsunamis, it is not all good. God sees this. There's something about that that's actually reassuring. 
God's not some Pollyanna in the sky who could never say a bad word about anyone or anything. God's not a false optimist. God is not a liar. The Judeo-Christian stories are about death and resurrection, about sin and grace, not the power of positive thinking. God sees that God's creation is not all good. And what sort of self-deceived, egomaniacal creator wouldn't eventually see that? And it grieves God deeply. There are flood stories in almost every culture, ancient flood stories, similar to the one in the Bible. Some deity sends a huge flood to destroy a world that's gone wrong. The floodwaters provide this possibility of some sort of cleansing or rebirth. There's almost always a hero in a flood story. And they're often really very intriguing characters, powerful adventurers or frost ogres in Norse myths. In an Indonesian myth, the heroes are a pregnant mouse and a pregnant woman who escape in a pig's trough paddling with a soup ladle. In a Korean story, the flood hero is a boy born to a fairy who mates with a laurel tree. If you ask me, Noah's a little bit bland in comparison to these other flood heroes. The ancient rabbis were puzzled by Noah, a little offended by him, actually. The text says Noah found favor in the sight of God, and they were like, why? What about him did God like? God says to Noah, I'm going to destroy the world, every single living thing. And Noah says, nothing? No questions? No arguments? Later in the text, other men will argue with God when God says such a thing. Abraham tries to convince God not to destroy Sodom. Moses advocates the people when God wants to destroy him because they worship the golden calf. Abraham and Moses argue with God on behalf of the people. Noah, in the face of the destruction of the world, is silent, takes instructions without question, just picks up his hammer and starts pounding nails. How is this righteous, the rabbis wonder. So Rashi figures, when God says to Noah, you shall enter the ark, it's actually a promise more than a command. Noah isn't any righteous, more righteous than any other man, but he is the recipient of a promise. You shall enter the ark, and it will change you. In the ark, which is this womb-like space carved out of the water, Noah will be remade, reborn. Noah becomes a good man in the ark, the Midrash suggests not by battling forces of nature or striving for moral superiority or perfecting anything about himself, but because he learns how to feed the animals the right food at the right time, insists Rashi. Learns how to care for the animals and keep them alive. The ark is where Noah learns kindness, to be attentive to a vast array of others in a way that requires curiosity, which leads to a tender concern. Adam and Eve wanted to be like God, according to the Genesis story. But 
maybe they didn't really know what God was like. The human who was remade in the ark will come out not all yearning for grandeur, but much more grounded. God devises to reconceive the human not by spiriting him away to some high, dry, holy ground, but having him undertake a construction project, gather camels and snakes and monkeys, and then spend 40 days and 40 nights pressed up close to those animals in a small space where there's really not an option of separating yourself. What a creative idea. According to the Gospel of Mark, Jesus is driven by the Spirit out into the wilderness where he spends 40 days and 40 nights with the wild beasts. Ask the animals and they will teach you, says Job. Consider the birds, says Jesus. Like humans have something to learn from other creatures, which of course, this should be obvious. Kids know this instinctively. They learn from animals. I mean, there's actually studies about this, about the profound role that animals play in the cognitive and moral and emotional development of children, how attempts to discern among different types of animals and animal behaviors enables children to create richer mental worlds and feel a greater range of emotion. And then they enter the adult world, which tends to be not only racist, sexist, but speciest, where they often lose some of their respect for other life, for the creation that sustains us, as if the world is about all about humans, as if we don't actually need worms to aerate the soul, soil so we can grow food, as if we don't actually totally depend on bacteria to make our digestive systems work properly, as if somehow Humans are above the rest of the intricate web of life, as if we, above all beings, are self-sufficient, just us and our machines. But human self-sufficiency is a lie. Maybe that's a big part of the problem, that we can't embrace how dependent we are on all the relationships that make life possible. Humans are so full of pretenses, how little like other animals are we. But everyone poops. My kids love that book. And eats and dies and becomes dust. God says to Noah, build an ark, take with you two of every sort of animal to keep them alive. Also take with you every sort of food that is eaten. I mean, imagine that scene, what craziness on a boat in the middle of the water, the meal times, the barking and neighing and oinking and mooing and everyone pooping. I think I imagined the ark as a long but relatively peaceful ride. But Noah must have been really busy. One midrashic author says that Og the giant called the pursuer of ecstasy clung to the side of Noah's boat when the flood started, what rise, water started to rise. And so Noah poked a hole in the side of the boat so he could feed the giant and keep him alive. As if even keeping the giant pursuer of ecstasy alive was essential to the process of the world being remade. 
What a journey. What a story. An ark filled with tons of animals and eight people. This is God's way of working out God's second draft. Noah learns to be a feeder and a life sustainer, learns to pay attention to a great array of needs. It's in the ark with the animals that Noah becomes a new sort of person. And God, through this whole ordeal, becomes different too. God suffers in the process of recreation, rebirth, death, and resurrection. Though powerful, God seems vulnerable too. God feels regrets, hurt, sorrows, is described as having a heart that breaks. The ark makes its way through the water. God has been in pain. And then finally, after a specific period of time, the water breaks. The door of the ark bursts open and every living thing that swarms and creeps, every beast, every bird, everything that moves upon the earth tumbles out of that womb-like space. And you know what? After all that, it's still not all good. It's kind of a mess. Every kind of animal and people confined in a smallish space for many days, they emerge smelly and irritable. God sees that it is still not all good, that the imaginations of humans are still capable of evil. But it's as if God isn't concerned anymore with perfecting his masterpiece. God decides instead to love. God surveys the messy, fragile, volatile, crazy, beautiful creation and pronounces it not so much good, like objectively good, but loved, subjectively, madly, wildly loved. Now, instead of pronouncing God's work very good, God commits to everlasting love. That's the covenant that God makes with Noah. And the text says specifically all the rest of the animals. The way forward, God decides, is love. How corny and beautiful and true. That's what we can trust. Love. Love is messy and painful, certainly far more difficult than the initial act of creation. But as God watches God's creation tumble out of the ark, this is the path she chooses. I'm not sure what happens now in this new stage of the life of creation, the Anthropocene, but I still believe in the promise of God's infinite love and everlasting mercy. And God is very creative, so there's that. And God wants us, needs us, to come along with them, to choose love, however difficult and painful and messy. May the light enlighten us.